Uh, welcome you guys to settle in here. Boy, that was a, a, a real thrill to, to uh, fix our eyes upon uh, Jesus Christ. Wasn't, wasn't that just a thrill? I mean, uh, you know, I just think about who he is and uh, he's coming back for his own and I really like the line, uh, shall not kneel and shall not fade. <sighs> That's just, <laughs> you know, uh, you, you sometimes get the idea that when you face opposition in your life that, that he's like kind of a, a weakling at times or in, you know, AWOL or whatever, but our God is our God. He's amazing. There is no one like the rock. It says in the Bible, and the other, other uh, pretenders are only pretending. So, uh, here we are. We are in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I invite you to turn your scriptures to page 991 or thereabouts. Maybe it'll go on to 992, something like that. Uh, or in your app or whatever you, you're, you're going to look at. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're tackling this remarkable book. And remember, I want to remind you why, why Timothy wrote this. He, he said, uh, or why Paul, excuse me, wrote this to Timothy. In chapter 3, he even laid it out so we'd have no ambiguity about what this book was for, what it will achieve or accomplish if we're actually fully embracing it and absorbing it and eating it. Uh, not like a whole Dorito that tears itself all the way through your body, but digesting it and internalizing it. You ever choke on a Dorito? No, don't put your hand up. Uh, don't embarrass you. Uh, yeah, so this is a difficult to digest book. I mean, the whole book is, I mean, there's a few parts that are like, yeah, that was easy to read. But the most part, most of it is, is rather difficult to read, rather, rather direct, actually. And, and, and this is a case in point today in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verse 8 through, uh, the second paragraph of chapter 2, verse 8 through, I think, 15 it is. But Paul is writing and he says in verse 14 of chapter 3, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He, it's quite a description that he has given us. Uh, uh, he says, this is who you are. Doesn't Jesus, when he says, you, he doesn't say, you should be salt, you should be light. Uh, Pastor Jonathan has reminded us often. It says, you are the light, right? You are the light, he, he, the salt. He defines us that way. He says, you are church of Christ, uh, the household of God. You are the church of the living God. You're an advertisement, as it were, of what it looks like when a little household, a marriage, a family, family gets its life together, gets its act together. It says behaving. It talks about putting your life in order. And this is, book is written that the church of Christ might be put in order. And ordering, of course, means that some things are out of joint and disordered. And uh, that's, that's an interesting thing that we have to think through. The title of my sermon is, I was told by my son, this is a wonderful uh, preacher's title because no one else talks like this, Josh. Uh, but uh, it, it is this, God orders his household and thereby, by the ordering of his household, saves multitudes in manifold ways. That's preacher talk. Multitudes in manifold ways. People are saved by your marriage and by you ordering your household according to his word just by observing you and the peace that passes understanding and the centrality of Jesus Christ in your life in ways you can't imagine. 
Okay, salt and light works whether you want it to or not, right? You don't get to stop. Does anyone here have a lasso strong enough to stop the sun from rising this morning, right? No, right? Uh, similarly, that, and that's partly why the word of God offends. It, it, it can't be stopped. God's word can't be stopped. His church can't be stopped. It will not be stopped. You may, you know, put people in prison. You may force them in certain postures physically. But you can't stop a people praying to a risen Lord. It's impossible. The spirit uh, is a powerful spirit. And he gives many gifts to his church. And the, the, it seems to me that the ordering of the world is trying very, very hard, overboard, almost in, in um, caricature now, in exaggerated ways in recent times, to try to, th to thwart God, uh, to, to reorder things in ways that are actually quite ugly. There's a, a, a little story that kids often get read to by grandma and grandpa or their parents called the ugly duckling. Here's a picture of one of the early um, versions of it. I don't know if you've read that one, but if you didn't remember reading this, uh, ugly duckling is the story of a, of, a, of a duck that raises a hatch of, of eggs and, and one of those eggs was snuck in there uh, was this, the ugliest of the ducklings. It looked weird, it was big, it was ungainly, it was awkward and, and all the farmyard animals and certainly all the brothers and sisters of this ugly duckling mocked him and, and made fun of him and talked about just what a, what a piece of junk he was and eventually gets driven away and there's just a whole story about it. But as he's growing up, Little by little, as, as his feathers are, um, is that word molting? Is that the right word? Molting. He's losing one set of feathers. And little by little, he's becoming even more ungainly in his teenage years. <laughs> more ugly, I think I would say. Because it's even cute a little bit. You know what I mean? When it's little. But you ever seen those, the geese and stuff when they're in that? Ooh, they're ugly. <laughs> but then, you're chuckling because you agree, I hope. And uh, they're ugly. And uh, most of us would wish we could burn our eighth grade picture. That's the reality uh, uh, of where we are. Amen? <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, but the story goes this way. Eventually, uh, the, this ugly duckling reaches maturity and come to find out it's, it's a swan. He's a swan. And beautiful, way more elegant, uh, beautiful than the trumpet swan, beautiful sound even, uh, compared to a quack quack and the, and, the, and the duck, which is, has its own sort of beauty, but put a duck next to a swan and you see there's a difference, right? And I would say, suggest to you, I don't just bring up this story because I like telling you about the ugly duckling, but I would suggest to you that when we read this text, the degree to which you're inclined to adopt the, I'll call it the narrative of the world or of your heart and flesh or to adopt the, the order of the world and secular affairs, the kingdom of this world. Satan is ordering his world in a certain way and the worldly order their affairs and households in a certain way. But when you read this, if, if you have that kind of mindset, you're going to say to yourself, this is ugly. People who do this will be ugly. And I grant you, to one degree or another, the church, when we absorb this and try to work it out, I certainly have tried for a couple decades of my life. I've believed this text. I've tried to live it out in my own context with my wife and caring for my mother and, my, and, and others in my life. You know, it's difficult. And, and sometimes you, you, read, you read these things and then you, you feast your eyes on Jesus and you think, oh my goodness, who can be a man in the presence of the man? Jesus Christ. No wonder it's hard to be a husband when Jesus is the bridegroom. Do you see? What, how could I compare to such a light? 
And yet, the Lord has called each, if you're living, uh, to have a role to play in his, in his plan, in his, in his family, uh, to, to have a, a certain order where you'll fit, a role for you, a, a function. And so if you're feeling ugly today, know that the, the work of God is still going on in his church, and, and don't let your experience or instincts um, sort of prevent you from at least opening your attention to this document, this command from God's word that has stood the test of time and shall not fade even in our time. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll read the whole chapter, though we'll look only at the second uh, paragraph since yesterday, or last Sunday, we looked at the first half. So Paul's writing, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm, not telling, I'm, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. I'm a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Uh, let's pray. We're going to need prayer for this, aren't we? <laughs> Hmm. I think of Isaiah 61 as Therese was reading in our prayer this morning, Lord, that you come to bind up the brokenhearted. You come to set the captive free, to bring liberty to your people. And uh, you might think initially when I read this that this is an opposition to what Christ himself achieved, the liberty of, of those uh, who have been caught up into the redemptive work of God. So God, show us how this is life-giving, how it's beautiful to order our affairs according to your will. Uh, would you teach us what it is to be alive, what it is to know Christ, what it is to be ready for your return, and all that we might, at least in this place, have our affairs ordered according to your word. We'll trust that witness and the results of that to you. You say, and I, I think it's Galatians 6, Lord, you, you write that a man can, uh, God cannot be mocked. A man will reap what he sows. 
And so we more and more want to order our affairs rightly uh, as the household of faith with you at the center of Jesus and us taking our roles, our positions, and our service from you, our cues from you, our directions from you, trusting that by one means or another, you will save us from things we have not even imagined yet, and that you will do good things, and that you will rescue us and prepare us, and that we will flourish in every way important to you. Thanks for listening, and now continue your Spirit's presence in our body by giving our uh, undivided attention to you and to hear not me speak, but the word of the living God. In Christ's name, amen. As I said at the beginning, we do live in a, a time when there are competing world orders. Satan is ordering his kingdom in certain ways as he sees fit, the worldly or those who are caught up in the worldly affairs in that manner. They order their affairs in a certain way. And here in 1 Timothy, the living Lord Jesus Christ, through his messenger, the Apostle Paul, now in scriptures, is ordering his house as he sees fit. So at the bottom line of what we're about to digest this paragraph and the rest of this letter and really all the scriptures is this test Will I yield to the master of the house or not? Because you know that old thing, like when we kind of get full of ourselves in our teenage or 20s, and we can kind of sometimes in our family lines, maybe you know of a story like this. I hope you weren't, have not personally lived through a situation like this, where you get to in your idea, in your thick head, and I'm going to say it's thick. Let's, I'm not going to do it that way, Mom. Dad, I'm going to get out of here and do it my own. And you get to leave and set your own household affairs rightly. And usually you discover that mom and dad weren't quite so stupid as you once thought. <laughs> right? You know, so it's true that uh, the, the master of the house gets to set the household rules. Gets to order their affairs. Now, now, this is a difficult chapter, a difficult section, especially for us in our contemporary times and in the, in the, the things that we think the things that we have instinctual in our flesh. And so I'm going to tackle this, this chapter, but before I do, I wanted to read uh, a paragraph. And I, I've been uh, blessed by a ministry uh, organization called the Gospel Coalition, the Gospel Coalition. And in the Gospel Coalition, they, they have a certain uh, sort of foundational documents that are like, this is what we're about. This is the guiding sort of um, uh, ethics and uh, theology of our, of, our, uh, of our organization. They're a parachurch organization seeking to strengthen and lift the hands of, of our church and many others. And I want to read to you this. This is the bigger picture because we're only looking at one small paragraph. And we, the Bible is quite large. There's a lot of paragraphs here, right? So I, of course, in one sermon can't address every nuance of these things. I won't be able to do that. Uh, but we do need to uh, uh, digest this one paragraph well. Let's do that today. We will. But listen to this description. I think it's one of the most, it's one of the newest, I think really a beautiful description of what the household of faith, the pillar of the truth, is meant to look like and be like when it is uh, absorbing the full counsel of God's word. Listen to their description. This is their third statement in their uh, um, their their basic principles they have agreed to. It's, and they, they title this statement, Creation of Humanity. We believe that God created human beings, male and female, in his own image. Adam and Eve belonged to the created order that God himself declared to be very good, serving as God's agents to care for, manage, and govern creation, living in holy and devoted fellowship with their maker. 
Men and women, equally made in the image of God, enjoy equal access to God by faith in Christ Jesus and are both called to move beyond passive self-indulgence to significant private and public engagement in family, church, and civic life. Adam and Eve were made to complement each other in a one-flesh union that establishes the only normative pattern of sexual relations for men and women, such that marriage ultimately serves as a type of the union between Christ and his church. In God's wise purposes, men and women are not simply interchangeable, but rather they complement each other in mutually enriching ways. God ordains that they assume distinctive roles which reflect the loving relationship between Christ and the church. The husband exercising headship in a way that displays the caring, sacrificial love of Christ and the wife submitting to her husband in a way that models the love of the church for her Lord. In the ministry of the church, both men and women are encouraged to serve Christ and to be developed to their full potential in the manifold ministries of the people of God. The distinctive leadership role within the church given to qualified men is grounded in creation, fall, and redemption, and must not be sidelined by appeals to cultural developments. That's very well put. It took, I'm sure, a team of people to come up with that. That was very well described. So that's the big, broad brush place we're at. We're looking here at, at 2 Timothy verse 8. And what does it actually say? What does it say? And, and particularly, what does it mean? It says, I desire that, that then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What does that actually mean? Well, it's kind of interesting. Uh, it, 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 I think it's not very, this one is not very hard. Uh, most of us don't, don't struggle to, de- we don't struggle in debate right now, though we do struggle to apply it as men. Uh, but it's quite clear what he says. I desire then that in every place that men should pray. The answer, what does it mean? It means that men should pray. <laughs> all right. You know, I can go off the stage now. <laughs> we got all that figured out, right, y'all? <laughs> men should pray. Well, there you go, right? Uh, and reminding you who he says this, I desire, this is the Apostle Paul. And then some of you, uh, you know, guys have a hard time sometimes in, in gatherings, which is why he's talking about anger and disputing with one another, that kind of thing. We have a hard time uh, receiving authority from other, other guys, especially when we think we have a pretty good idea what should be done. And you might think, he says, I desire, well, that's just one man's opinion. This is just Paul's idea. Well, that's not actually the case. He's not just airing his idea. This is, as it says in verse 1, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Now that's a pretty exalted title. And it's actually a more exalted title than anyone in our generation on this planet has and that anyone in this room has. He is speaking not as a guy with a couple of ideas and recommendations. He is speaking as a messenger officially, set apart, sanctified, called, and given the word by the Holy Spirit to declare to the church of Jesus Christ what the bridegroom, his master and Lord Jesus Christ, wishes for the design and the ordering of his household. 
So this isn't his opinion that you can just set aside. This is not his advice. This is God's plan. This is God's desire. And we must always try to order our affairs according to God's word. But how far should we really be going here? Well, he, he does say that. I desire then that in every place. Whew, every place means... The word every, by the way, means there's no places that don't fit in that word every. Do you get that? There's no place where men should not be praying. Do you remember what I just read? In, in, uh, let me see if I can find it quickly. Oh, I'm not sure I can't. In, in family, church, and civic life, there is no place, place where, where prayer is, should be disqualified. I'll say it that way. We're to be praying in every place, in every context. And, and so that's the first thing. That's why he says at the very end of that wonderful thing that no appeals to cultural development should sideline that. Do you see? Now, it's fairly rare in the church for people to be saying, well, men should be praying in every place. I have not heard that in my lifetime, that people in the church of Christ uh, would set that particular command aside. But they do set aside verses 9 and following in a variety of ways. Right? And, and we got to recognize that right at the very beginning that he's talking about not just Ephesus in 62 AD, who Paul is writing to, to Timothy, who's trying to put uh, things in order. There's lots of households of faith in that large city, and there's some confusion and disarray. There's disorder in the households. And so and Paul, through Timothy, is, and God, through both of them, is, is working to bring order because we need a, a, a well ordered house. To be a pillar and buttress of the truth, to be a, a household, a family that's the kind of family that people looking at say, I want in. I want in. You know, that, that leader, that, that person who sacrifices and does not promote himself, he's not uh, you know, self-promoting, but rather Christ-promoting, I want in, right? Because there's no one like Jesus. If you haven't figured that out, I can tell you about him. There's no one like Jesus. So the first thing to say, when we say, I desire that in every place that men should pray, what do we mean? We mean that men should pray every place, everywhere. The Prince of uh, Preacher is Charles Spurgeon. I went to a conference this week and I heard of this. This is something he once wrote. He said this, We miss a thousand blessings because we are too busy to commune with God. We are here, there, everywhere, except where we ought to be. And where ought we to be? Chapter 2 of 1 Timothy. First of all, that means this should go first, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings. And then he says it again in case we missed it, because, you know, I don't want to stereotype it too much, but I'm allowed to say this because I am a guy. Guys, sometimes we're thick. We miss it. Uh, I'm not going to make it, you show your hands how many times your wife had to repeat the same thing for it to click home. Oh, yes, I should go put the car over, whatever. Verse 8. I desire then that in every place that men should pray. So what are you to do, guys? Did you get it yet? Pray. What are we to do, men? Pray. Pray, pray, pray. Yeah, that's right. So pray. Oh, but it says how. Now, this is important. Uh, I desire that you should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, that's interesting. How do we pray? Lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. I, it seems to me that the posture in worship, I, you've probably seen it. When, when we're lifting our hands in this context, in corporate worship, or maybe at home, he's talking about empty hands, isn't he? 
Uh, he, he does mean empty hands. I don't know if you've ever, sometimes people, I feel your eyes on me once in a while when I'm worshiping. Uh, and and I, I don't know, I lift my hands. Why does Pastor Josh do that? Why does a man lift his hands in prayer? Not to draw attention to himself, but to direct the attention of others around him, and especially for, in my case, my own heart, to God. I lift my hands, not to coach you to lift yours, but so that my own heart can say, I'm here for you, Lord. I am here, I will do what you bid. You have only to say. You have only to, to, to direct me. Lifting your hands with, or lifting your prayers with holy hands, what it's saying is, men, pray not in a way that, that promotes yourself or your agenda in your wife or children's case or household or with your boss or, or whomever or with, you know, the government that we live in. You don't posture in that sort of manner. You're not sneaking in a lecture by what, the way in which you pray. You're lifting your hands and you must, as a man, lead in this way because you're admitting I don't know what to do. I don't know where to lead us. I don't know where to go. I don't know how we're going to make it this month. And so I lift my hands in holy prayer and say, at least the ones around me will know that if I don't know where to go or what to do, he knows where to go and what to do. And so those that you are leading will flourish when you yourself have an attitude and a, a, a heart's inclination to submit to Jesus Christ. Because all the commands in the New Testament about submit out of reverence to one another is for Christ's sake. To serve out of Christ's sake. In Ephesians 5, you know, read this last week. The number of times in which we're commanded to do difficult things. And always it's for the sake of Christ. Do you see? And so you're lifting holy hands, empty hands, without anger, without quarreling, because we're not talking about uh, uh, human anger. Most of our anger comes because we're spurned, because we get impatient, because uh, things didn't work out quite like they, we wanted, whether it's something we did with our hands or someone else and their agenda, it doesn't really matter. The anger of, our, of being thwarted and the frustration and the temper that rises in a man, because really it's about you not getting your way, isn't it? That's really why we get angry that I didn't get my way, right? That guy cut me off today on the, on the road or my car went this way or that. Whatever the case is, we get anger for the wrong reasons rather than the righteous indignation and anger that, that we see presented by some like King David or Jesus for sure. Uh, when we're, they're angry not because they got spurned and thwarted, they are angry because the living God should be exalted above all other and someone's throwing shade on him. That's uh, the other reason to be angry. That's the right reason to be angry, to give him glory. So men, I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. What is the next section, the larger section of chapter uh, 2, second paragraph, is much more uh, direct and maybe difficult to digest and swallow. Uh, verse 9, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a 
Woman, learn quietly with all submissiveness. I I do not permit a woman uh, to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What does this part of the text mean? Well, um, this is, as you know, obviously more controversial, but also there's much debate about this. But I'll be honest with you, I've read, I have books that are 600 pages, 800 pages just on this chapter, or this paragraph, just on this issue. I have three or four I tried to skim read unsuccessfully this week. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of debate, but it all boils down to this. It's, it, it is abundantly clear what the words mean, what they say here. But what really is going down is we just don't want to. That's just really what it is. We just don't want to. And there is in our hearts uh, something about uh, not willing to yield pride of place really to Jesus Christ and then to those uh, he has put in authority over us in various ways, whether Pastor Josh or a husband, uh, whatever you might be. This is really about following Christ. And here's the thing. He points, to, let, me, let me just put it this way. There's two, really, really two commands or things he says. Let a woman learn. That's the first thing. First of all, that's exciting. Let a woman learn in, in context that's, that's a beautiful thing. I know in our time, we are now past that tipping point where most at the collegiate level, more than 50% of the students at the collegiate level are, are, are ladies, and more, quite a bit more than 50% are getting their PhDs now, but that is an anomaly in human history. It wasn't this time. At this time, women were excluded from learning in the synagogue. It was a men's only thing. What's happening here is a beautiful thing. And I think that's partly why the church in that time was really struggling because women are being invited in the first time to to really engage in these things, to really learn and listen and adopt and embrace the gospel and learn the scriptures. And and so there's some, they're figuring it out. And it's, of course, it's been a little awkward. It's been a little frumpy. It's been a little bit off the rails here and there in certain households of faith in Ephesus. And so he's giving some clarity. He's, he, he's describing some things. And, and, and I think I have a lot of room for, for those who are working this out and discussing this thing. But, but there are two sorts of takes on the text that I, I don't have a lot of time for. Really, I have no time for. Uh, one is if you're reading this text and it says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over me. And when you read that, if you're going to say, well, God is not forbidding anything here. I don't have much time to talk about yet with that, okay? You're just outright saying no. And if you outright say no here, you'll probably outright say no over here and over here and over here and over here, won't you? You'll find all reasons not to say yes to God. The second group that I have uh, not much time for is those who say that this this command, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, uh, that those, or let a woman learn, that those are limited to the specific era and place of Ephesus in 62 AD, that these are not transcultural. These, I'm going to just show, you just can't read this paragraph and not realize he's trying to lay out a universal order to the household of faith. He says that, verse 8, I desire that in every place, Will you exclude men from praying in every... Would you say that's not what he's saying? He's saying every place men pray. And, and then he says, likewise, still in the theme of every place. And, and then you have logically, if you, who does he base his ground, his authority, ground his reason for this? He doesn't go to the Mosaic Law. 
which was fulfilled in Christ. He goes to creation. He goes to the very beginning in the nature of the universe, the cosmos, as it was made. He goes right to Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. Verse 13. You see that positive? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. He's saying, I'm just, he's advertising to us, I'm just yielding to the way our creator constructed this whole thing. And then in verse uh, 13 and 14, verse 14, he then points to the fall also. This is, this is universal, obviously, to every culture. It has been, there are people who were created and were fallen. These are universal cross-generations, cross-cultural. Uh, they are trans-cultural things he's describing, right? The fall. Uh, and, and we're not to set aside uh, God's word ever. In fact, isn't that really, because he mentions here about the woman being deceived and becoming a transgressor. Would you turn your Bibles to Genesis 3? It's on page 2 in the Bibles in our pews. It's at the very beginning, page, not quite page 1. Page 1 is he's creating on seven, or six days and resting on the seventh. But then there's a description of the garden. But listen to how, how uh, they went wrong because actually the way that Adam and Eve went wrong at the beginning is the very way that we've been going wrong ever since. It's the same story repeated ad nauseum. It really is. On this text too, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 8 through 15, even on this text, it's the same thing played out in our time in the church, in our specific society, in our generation. Listen to what the scripture says. I'm going to read it again in case you're, you need a refresher. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 1 of Genesis, first book of the Bible, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the, woman said, but the, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the, both, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves, to get, fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Really, what happened, th there are two errors we see played out. One is to add to God's word, and one is to subtract to God's word. Th they're adding to God's word, and they're subtracting to God's word, in, in a way. Uh, how so? Well, what, is, what, is it, what does it say? Did God actually say, right? Did God actually, what's he doing? He's subtracting from God's words what Satan's doing. Did he really say that? And that's really at the, at the root of those who wrestle with our text. I, I know wrestling is appropriate. It's difficult. We should be patient with each other in every marriage and household. As we look at the scriptures, some of the texts are hard to absorb and work themselves out. It's messy. We're all sinners. Be patient with each other. But, but here's the thing. We must be very careful at the, this level, at the worship of Christ and at the church level, because whatever method you use at, say, a given text, say 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, you will use that same way somewhere else. So if you're going to add to scripture here, 
I guarantee somewhere down the line, you'll want to add to Scripture another time when you find another text that's, le- that's also hard to hear or swallow. So, so Satan's doing that. He, he rhymes currently in the church. He's still, that lie, he's still lying as a rhyming liar. <laughs> that first lie, does God really say, you know, that sort of thing. On the other hand, I think a good case can be made that Eve is actually adding to Scripture before she even takes the fruit because uh, it, it, she says, uh, we shouldn't eat this thing and neither should we touch it. But if you read Genesis 1 and 2, the Lord and Adam, neither one uh, share that insight, say that. They don't actually say that you should not touch it. Hmm. If she's adding, and I'm not sure I would go, you know, to the grave saying that's really what she's doing. But let's say that at least that's the method that has happened in our time since the fall. If we can subtract to God's word, we can also add to his word. And she's adding to it. Think of what happens if that's what's happening. She thinks, well... If I, I shouldn't eat it, I shouldn't touch it. But by adding to God's word, it actually, when she then goes on to reach out and she touches it, and she suspected that if she touched it, she would die immediately, which she didn't. And it kind of, because she was able to touch it without dying, pluck it, she was sort of encouraged in her sin. Because she added to God's word, she got the idea that, well, I could keep going. It didn't, I didn't die. <laughs> and then she took a bite and think, that's pretty good. You try it, Adam. And it, unfortunately... Adam is supposed to protect her, defend her, protect her. The, as every man who's read this text feels in his soul, he was with her. Watching the serpent do his thing, listening in. Eh. <laughs> the first couch potato dad, right? I mean, he's just watching this thing. It's not good. And she takes, and so some are tempted to add to God's word, and we must not do that either. So these are universal commands. These are transcultural things. However hard they are to swallow or to listen to. What does it actually mean, though? Not uh, uh, to have, as it says in 2 Timothy. Let me read the, the verse again. It says, let a woman le- learn. He does say that. That's easy to receive. Our, our culture wants to hear that for sure. But the bit part, the other part he doesn't, they don't want to hear. Uh, I, I, I let a woman learn. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. It does not mean, Titus chapter 2 says this, uh, Paul writing to Titus in the same situation, getting a church in order, he says in Titus 2, 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Read that again. Verse 3, Titus 2, 3. They are to teach what is good. And so to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So what this text means is not saying that women should just not use their gifts. If God's giving a gift of teaching to a woman, whoops, that was a mistake, don't use that gift, honey. It's not what it's saying. It's saying use the gifts that God gives you in the right order, in the right context, in the right way. It does not mean not to touch or not to teach. Uh, it, it's not talking about that. It's not talking about leadership. It's talking about using it in the right sphere. A great example of this, I just learned about this woman in history. She's, you know, so many of the great saints are actually hidden beneath even greater saints. You know, Martin Luther had a gentleman underneath him who just did an amazing amount of work for Luther. You know, and Charles Spurgeon, I've been studying this man. I really, he was the prince of preachers in the English-speaking world and a remarkable man. But did you know, because I didn't know this, there was a woman who served with him named Lavinia Bartlett. Lavinia Bartlett. She was born in 1806. 
And uh, when uh, she heard Charles Spurgeon first preach there in London, 1854, her first time she heard him preach, he was a young, they called him the boy preacher because he was not even, I think he was not even 20 yet. He was preaching in London and, the, and, and it was just people were coming out of the woodwork to hear this young man preach. And she discerned immediately that this guy had the anointing of the living God upon him. Why? Because he made much of Christ. That's why when Paul writes to Timothy, don't worry about how old you are. You just make much of Christ and God will use you, is what he says. So here's Charles, young man, uh, making much of Christ. And this, this older woman, she's I think in her 50s when she first uh, uh, encounters Charles's preaching. And she, she hears this and, and she's immediately thought, this is the church for me. She joins the church. She serves there in whatever ways for a number of years. Uh, but then, in, uh, I think it was uh, just a few years later, uh, Charles asked her in 1859 to lead the women's Sunday school. They had a Sunday school Bible study later in the day, afternoons on Sundays. And there were about six ladies there that first time. It quickly grew as she was teaching to 50 ladies. 50. Within a matter of a short order. 50 women coming to hear the word. Then it grew to 700. Then it grew to 800. And it grew and it grew and grew. The women in London coming to hear this lady expound the scriptures. At her, uh, she died rather uh, unexpectedly and suddenly in 1875. You can read the eulogy that Charles Spurgeon gives uh, to the Sunday school class that Sunday, the week of her death. He, they didn't, of course she died and was unable to, to deliver that, that, the lesson plan that day. So he stood up and gave a eulogy that Sunday to her Sunday school class. I'm sure that every woman who could was there in the class. And he, he said this. It's written in the September 1875 edition of kind of the church newsletter, The Sword and Trowel. He said this. Ever since I have known my beloved sister Lavinia, now who's with God, I have admired the way in which she kept to the simplicity of the gospel. Both in her own experience and in her teaching, many have come and gone, but we have always known where to find her. I remember her tremblings when certain novel ideas were introduced into the class by a good but unwise brother. She came to me and said, this will never do. These young people know nothing of these points and they don't need to know. They will be puzzled and led away from simply looking to Jesus. Charles would go on and he writes, she was a worker who neither needed the pastor's praise to encourage her, nor his exhortation to enliven her. What a worker she was, nobody will ever know until the books are open at that last day just how much she did. Charles would say, that this woman was perhaps, in fact, he didn't have, uh, at that time, they, especially in Victorian England, they didn't have the office or they didn't use the role of deaconess uh, like we do here in our church. It's, it's somewhat culturally uh, how we work out the scriptures here. We can talk about that. We will next week or two. Uh, but here's he said, he once said of her that my best deacon is a woman, he said, referring to Lavinia. This woman brought 2,000 people to their church. 2,000 ladies would, and their families would join the, the Charles's church through her teaching and her influence. It's, it's accounted that she led over 1,000 people to Christ herself. 1,000 people. 1,000. 
There was this one account I heard of that, that there was a time when there were these uh, six women of the night. I think you adults know who I'm talking about. They had come intending to disrupt this ladies thing, I suppose, because they were disrupting their, their, their clientele, I'll say. And uh, they came in in order to make a big ruckus and to stop her teaching. Four of those six people came to Christ that moment. Church, the ladies are not the B team of Jesus. You are God's A team, and so are the men. But only when we fulfill our roles as God has designed us. You serve where he puts you. And trust that what might feel to the world around you like you're an ugly duckling, like you're submitting and being subjugated by Pastor Josh, a patriarch or something. Baloney. Lavinia never uh, stood against Charles uh, Spurgeon. She never started her own ministry, her own church. She flourished under his ministry and with him. She flourished. She's wealthier in heaven because Charles preached Sunday morning. And then she taught Sunday afternoon. Do you know, let me say this very personally and this way. Let me make it very, very personal. My, my, my mother and my wife are here. The two women on this planet I know the best. They are more qualified than I am. They're more competent, more better multitaskers. They have more capacity than I ever will have. They are, my mother raised, raised my dad died when I was 10, so she is an omnicompetent woman. My wife raising my own kids, Omnicompetent woman. They are able to do so many things that when scripture says this, that let a, let a woman, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise of authority over a man. It's not doing that because they don't have the ability. It's saying they don't have the responsibility. And what it's doing is it is focusing an omnicompetent person on something that will make them eternally living and wealthy. It says that, that they'll save many, verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. That's not childbirthing, by the way. That's not the word. It's not we're saved by having children. It's we're saved by pointing to Jesus. Training, raising, discipling our own children. Sometimes God gives you a child. Some of you are mothers here. Some of you are single and never will have be mothers. That's not, it does not demean how you image God in any manner. But through childbearing, through pointing to Christ in your capacity, in your role, you will save not only yourself, but Paul will go on to save Timothy and many others as well who listen to you. When it says, let a woman learn, and it says, to, with all submissiveness, it's not saying shut up and be quiet and let only the men pray out loud. Because it says in Corinthians, that's not what it's, he says elsewhere, women should pray out loud. It's not that. It's saying do things in the right order and in the right way. 1 Peter 3, 4, let your adorning, dear women, be of the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit 
which in God's sight is very precious. I think it just boils down to that. Who are you trying to please? Are you trying to please your husband? Are you trying to please a pastor? Are you trying to please your neighbor? We all have people online, social media, that we know are unappleasable, right? Uh, who are you trying to please? Make it your life ambition, man, woman, to please Jesus. Because it is very precious in God's sight, the beauty and gentle and quiet spirit. Because I started with a little description of an ugly animal, I'm going to end with an ugly animal because they have the picture and I might as well finish with this story called The Ugly Dachshund. How many of you have seen this old 1966 Disney film? Right, Raise your hand nice and tall. All right. Great. Just wanted to know. This was... I, I, I dropped my Disney account. I'm just going to tell you that. <laughs> but this is back when they kind of nailed it. <laughs> and the, and my, it's a wonderful family-friendly film. And there's two dogs up here. If you like dogs, um, I know some people here love dogs. Uh, there's the Dachshund, which is like what we call them the wiener dogs. My, my Aunt Betty had wiener dogs. They were the silliest things ever to watch run, to be honest with you. <laughs> And, and, and very tempting to kick, you know, like a football as a, as a child. I, I, I'm sorry I said that, but that's just, I'm revealing my sin. The heart is deep with sin. Anyway, so they're, they're funny to watch. They are. Their legs are too small. They're too long. And whatever. They're fun. And uh, so there's the little dog. Said, the, 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 anybody know what that big dog is? What kind of dog is that? A great Dane. Here in Wisconsin or near Dane County, we know what a great Dane is, right? Beautiful. As silly as the dachshund looks, the Dane's majestic. You're like, that's the king of the dogs right there. That's a big, that's a big dog. It's a noble dog. Its chest is a barrel. You know, it's a beautiful dog. They're both beautiful in their own way. If you have a dachshund, I'm, I didn't mean to offend you. <laughs> you know, You'll forget anything I say about the women. You'll, you'll get on me about the dachshund. I'm sorry. Uh, I understand. That's how, that's how social media works. I understand. Anyways, this story is wonderful because there's this one point, and if you've seen the film, you probably can still remember it, even if it's dusty in your memory banks, where this, they get the little puppy, the, the great Dane, the, the, the husband does, and he brings it home. And, but it's, all, it's living around doxies, dachshunds, so it thinks it's a dachshund. Right? And this huge dog, as it's growing into you know, adolescence and then adulthood, it's, it's crawling around on its elbows, like on the ground, like on its belly, thinking that's what dogs do. They crawl on their bellies, because that's what only what dachshunds can do, <laughs> crawl on their bellies. So it's crawling, and it's just hilarious. It creates all kinds of problems. Your kids will they'll split a gut. It's just great. Anyways, they're walking around, and then there's this moment... And they're having, and he, he decides to submit the dog to one of those dog shows. And there's this moment where he just can't seem to get the dog to behave like, an, like a great Dane. Till a girl dog shows up. <laughs> and that, that, <sighs> he's like a great Dane, I'm here. And he wins the whole trophy. I just, I ruined the story for you. Your kids weren't listening anyways. So he's a, but he's a great Dane. Here is my point. The analogy for me is this. Now, I know what we just read is difficult to swallow. I'm, I know you're going to wrestle for this for a while, the rest of your life. I get that. Here's the thing. When Jesus comes back, however corrupt and wicked your authority is, whether it be Pastor Josh and the elders here, your husband that you have right now, on that day you'll know that he came for you. And he is the pastor of pastors, the shepherd of shepherds, the husband of husbands. He is the one that every husband in here is learning to pray with and for and to do for you. He is the one who makes us fully human 
both fully feminine and fully masculine. And in an era where if we think this delusion that, you can, that men and women are interchangeable and maybe with enough science we can remake ourselves somehow, that is evil. It's evil and it's wrong. This is saying, when you are gods, you're beautiful. Women, you don't have to become like a man. And men, you don't have to become like a woman. You be as your creator made you, you live as your creator made you, and you use your gifts to your fullest capacity as God would have you. And one day you will get the great prize, as Lavinia has, and Charles with her. Father in heaven, um, I want to just pray that whatever you intend a household of faith to look like, that we would look like your intent. That our marriages would increasingly look like Jesus at the center. Men praying, humbling themselves before their wives and their children and revealing what everyone knew in the first place they didn't know what to do. Oh, at the top level, those who are called to lead to take the authority that we might flourish in this as men, that we might pray as we should pray because we need you, Lord. We need you, need you, need you. Oh, would you bless the women who am I hearing as they want their husband to pray for them and they don't, they, they, they're so tired. They, they, they would love for someone to be worthy of following, worthy of supporting, to admit that Jesus Christ is king and to rally together in the right direction together. Oh, would you bless them and teach them how to invite their husband to pray for them rather than to guilt them into it. Father, would you bless the women in my hearing? I pray for many Lavinias to spiral out of this. Women who teach the fullness of the counsel of God. That a generation would be raised up as there's that saying that the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. You are blessing our fellowship. We have, we've had so many babies recently, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Beautiful people made in the image of God. Bless these dear mothers as they nurture and care for and eventually release these young ones into your kingdom service. And as a dad called to release his children into a dangerous world. God be you. Be the rock 